Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Jeff Rockwell. Jeff is a producer who's worked with Forever the Sickest Kids, Crown the Empire, uh, Memphis May Fire, and many, many more. As you can hear in this, he has some very, very interesting insights on both the creative process and recording. And I think we get into a lot of cool subjects and get some new territory on this podcast. So I'm really psyched on this episode. So once you're done with it, make sure you head over to his Noise Careers profile, check out his discography, his bio, take a listen to his Spotify playlist, and get to know him. Check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? I have a Lawson L47. Very great mic. A nice tube. Tube condenser with multi-pattern, although mm-hmm. I'm not using that right now. The red, Focusrite red on the preamp in. I'm into Pro Tools HD, 44124. <laughs> nice. Like, you know, all this time, I don't think anybody's uh, given us that. I'm here for you. <laughs> so uh, tell me about your background in music. Like most people, I started playing, playing in a band. And here in the South, it's really common. You start playing in church. That's a big thing around here. And so, yeah, I started playing in church as a kid. I played drums, kind of got into that and... Started a band and did the whole pop punk thing, late 90s, you know, I mean, who didn't, you know, it was great. It was a great time for music and it was a lot of fun. And, and then I went to college and was just kind of doing, kind of doing the, uh, doing the college thing. And I was studying film at, at uh, the University of Kansas. I went to a show one night. I saw uh, Marvelous 3, or Marvelous oh, 3 Oh, yeah, all. I sure do. I, well, I really Walker's like band. that uh, one record that Jerry Finn did, yeah. I had heard Freak of the Week before, and I was like, yeah, I was bored, so it was good. My brother was in town, so we went to this show, and I watched them play, and like Butch Walker just like absolutely just destroyed this club. They, they, mm-hmm. It was their Granada in Lawrence, Kansas, and I just stood there like the entire time. I don't think I moved like an inch the entire time. I just stood there with my mouth open, and I was like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do, but like I want to be involved with something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I just couldn't shake music. I was, I was kind of grew up on it and was really, really fascinated by it, and um, never really got too far from it. But but in college, you know, you start to kind of do your thing. It's like, okay, let's get serious, you know. Let's kind of you know move away from that and figure out what I'm going to really do. But I just couldn't shake it, you know. And that that one event just kind of like planted a seed, and I ended up transferring down down to UTA and finishing up and changing my major to music and just kind of immersed myself and started a studio with a friend and 
that's kind of how I got started, you know, making records, doing demos for bands in college for, for 50 bucks a song, making some really terrible, terrible recordings. <laughs> so, so tell me about the transition of when, when that starts to be a real thing instead of just terrible demos. It's a lot about the journey. You really do, um, you really do fail forward a lot when you are um, just kind of learning on your own. That's what I did. I had a, had a Roland VS2480. Like <laughs> this is you know two thousand two thousand two two thousand three and it, it was you know you know it was very it was very linear and, and so you kind of had to get creative with it and so it you just begin to kind of take a little more ownership in it you stop hitting buttons so much and you start kind of caring you start developing things and you start oh hey this worked last time so this might work again you start kind of seeing what works and what doesn't and then and eventually you get to where it doesn't like suck so bad and then you st- um, start. Just kind of moving on from there, making small, small steps at a time, and that's—I mean—that's really that's the best way to learn. Honestly, you know, you know, it's just kind of kind of failing forward. Mm-hmm. So you have your own studio. Can you tell me about about that? I suppose I do, and I don't. It's kind of a shared space. Wax is kind of a kind of a shared space here. It's um, owned by one guy who uses it, but but it's it's not his main business venture. And then there's a handful of us who use it as kind of a shared space. But I'm the main. I'm kind of the main tenant here. I'm here about ninety percent of the time, and so I pretty much have come in and just just kind of taken over the place. It's here in East Fort Worth. Uh, it's kind of uh, tucked away in a building that you wouldn't know. Which is good. <laughs> yes, I, I have the, I have the say, same exact thing with my studio. Is um, we joke our greatest theft deterrence policy is you could never figure out how to get in or out. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> our building used to be an old post office. It used to be the old Hanley Post Office in, mm. in East Fort Worth. Which uh, I, I mean, you know, they don't really shut down post offices. So imagine, you, you know, what kind of area it must be in to have a post office go like, nope, we're good. Like we don't need, we don't need to be here. And so you know, that's kind of where we are. It's. It's definitely you know you know nice and tucked away, but it's nice. It's nice. The facility is really nice. It's very very spacious, and you know we have a lot of a lot of room. That's what's kind of uncommon about it. Um, there's a lot of studios, and um, even ones that I've been in in the past are you know you got to save space. You got to you know cram all this stuff in there. But we're we're pretty blessed with a lot of space around here, so that's cool. Everybody kind of has their own their own area. <laughs> Nobody has to sit on top of each other. So yeah, that, that that is a good thing and very uncommon where I'm from in New York. So oh man, <laughs> I, I was in I, I was doing a thing with uh, for the sickest kids back in yeah, this was probably 2009 and we were we were just doing like a little uh, demo session in Midtown. Oh uh, yeah, that's gonna be this, awful. This studio, this studio was more than my house and my car payment. And it was probably 500 square feet. And yep. it was, I was, I was just like, I cannot believe, I cannot believe it. I mean, I mean, we really got a good down here, down in the South, our real estate, you know, prices are nothing like that. You know, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. So they were really mad at me that I could afford all that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it definitely is a thing. There's a reason I uh, keep my studio over the bridge in New Jersey instead of where I live in Brooklyn. Uh, Oh uh, yeah, so you're right over the bridge. Yeah, 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 like literally five blocks over. So, oh, nice. and nice. yeah, that gets kind of the best of the both worlds. But you know, my commute's not fun. Oh, sure. So, tell me about something aside from that that makes your studio unique. Well, the truth is, I mean, it's not unlike a lot of other spaces. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, we come in and we have all the equipment that we need, and we just kind of create the vibe ourselves. And so that's kind of the unique part. Of it is we just try to come in and set the tone for um, every individual project. We really don't try to, you know, fold everything into a template or 
have like crazy expectations of, oh yeah, this is how it's going to sound like. There are some studios that have like a studio drum kit and it stays set up and it's mic'd up and like that's cool for them, but like we would never do that here. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's just, we really like to start from scratch. We really like to kind of sink in and, and individualize everything. That's just kind of that's kind of the vibe here. That's what we do. We we start from scratch every single time. There's really no set of like rules, <laughs> I guess. You know. Gotcha. Tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has. The band favorite is is the um, the almost Aaron Gillespie uh, first act that I have. I got it in a uh, gear swap with Rico, their tour manager, mm. <laughs> and so it, it was one of his touring guitars for. Oh, for, nice! And you know, people and there's still a lot of people out, um, out there who don't really know about first act and how they actually make some really sweet guitars, even though they do make Walmart guitars. Oh, they really? They have a nice like line of really really sweet guitars, and, and there's some you know really good players who play them, and so that was one of them. Huh. And, People play I, it, trip out. They're like, I don't even believe that this is like. They can't believe it because it plays so well. But that's kind of always a nice conversation starter <laughs> for for a lot of reasons. <laughs> we don't even have Walmart here, so I didn't even know about this company. Oh. Yeah, first act. Yeah, that's, that's funny. good stuff. Yeah, and and we have this. Um, we also have this tube bass preamp that that belongs to the guy who owns the building, and it looks like something that you would buy at Radio Shack. Like it's really mm. is really low rent looking. He swore to me up and down. He was like, "You got to try that one day, man. You got to try it. You got to try that." And I was just like, "No, <laughs> I'm never plugging anything into that." You know, it was awful. I did, and sure enough, it's like it's easily one of the one of the pieces I could not live without. Now it's like it it just makes everything so smooth and awesome, and it's just out of left field completely. So, so that's always nice to find a piece like that, and I mean, and now we have a nice Moog uh, Moog Sub Thirty Seven. Oh, nice! It's really nice. Everybody loves that. So that's kind of hanging around. I borrowed that from a friend, and that's that's taken up residence here for a little bit. But yeah, that's hard to beat. You can mess around with that all day. But those are kind yep. of the those are kind of the unique pieces around. So we have a saying in this podcast. You know, you got Steve Albini on one side of the scale, like who's just going to record you, not really going to make any comments about your songs. And then you have like a John Feldman who fully rewrites your songs when you get to the studio. Where do you see yourself on that scale most of the time? I'm way more on the John Feldman uh-huh. side of the side of the scale for sure. And I won't. I will be taking royalties, unlike Steve Albini, who doesn't take mm-hmm. the royalties. Either. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I believe in that model. <laughs> that's a good model. You know what I mean? And that's how it works. But yeah, I, I like to kind of get in involved and do basically what's right for the project. There are some bands, um, there's a handful of bands I work with, they really don't want me to do that, you know? And it, it's, it's to the level to where it makes sense to where I don't mess with that end of it, but mm. my role is something else. And so part of my whole philosophy really is to also not try to insert myself too much into what's going on, but to try to um, make sure that I'm doing the right thing that I need to do for this project, you know? And, and I'll just say, okay, this is how it's going to go. You're coming to my studio. These are the rules. This is how it goes. You can do that or leave. You know, it, 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 it's just a matter of finding what's right for the project. That, that um, you ever seen the Metallica documentary, the Making the Black Album? Oh, Most of, of course. Us. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen, yeah. I've seen all th- three of the uh, docs they've done. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you know uh, Bob Rock, he, he was talking about how he was like, hey, we should, um, you, you know, mess with this chord change here a little bit. And then they just all stared at him. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like this, like dead, you know, it was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to get anywhere with that. So he just kind of picked his battles and picked and choose where he could do and, and then trusted the band to provide the rest of it. And so that's kind of what you have to do. You kind of have to trust who you're working with. That's why it's important mm-hmm. to kind of get vibe and meet people because if they don't have the right tools and like the quote unquote genius to kind of, make it their own thing, then then no matter how much you do and try to you, you know pull it out of the fire, it's really not going to go much farther than that because once you're out of the equation, they're on their own, you know? And so 
so I really like to make sure that we have a good relationship and we trust each other and everybody kind of has a role and every project's different. You know, sometimes I will write, you know, half a song. Sometimes I'll have a song written. Sometimes I won't write a word. Sometimes I won't change anything. It just depends, you know, and, um, we try to talk that out ahead of time and say, okay, what do you guys want from this? Let's talk about goals. Let's talk about the vision for the whole thing. Why are you coming here? What do you want me to do? What are you hoping to get out of it? That way we really set expectations properly. And that also helps everybody be satisfied at the end of it too because if their expectations are set and they're solid and you really have good things to shoot for, then as long as everybody's working towards that, then you really make sure that you get your money's worth. You get you know, you know, you get the right product at the end of it no matter what. So that's what we try to do. Nice. What do you think you bring to records most often? I try to get people to think out of the box, maybe a little more. And that kind of has to do with kind of where I'm located a little bit, too. I've kind of noticed Dallas really isn't a major, major music market. We have some talented people here, but they don't like, for whatever reason, to to take any kind of risk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're very scared to risk stuff. There's a lot of people who want to come in and they do a certain sound, but... But when it comes to trying something that's a little bit out of nowhere, it's a little bit out of left field, it's like, hey, can we try this to make it a little bit different? It's sometimes they've never even thought of something like that, you know? Mm. And that kind of element is trying to get people to think, you know, differently kind of about their approach to making a record and why it should be unique, why it should be different. That's kind of overall, that's, that's what I find myself a lot doing, just trying to, to, trying to just shake out their fears. They're like, no, that's crazy. And I'm like, no, just try it. You, mm. you know, why would you not try it? Yes. And so that's, uh, I end up saying that a lot. <laughs> we disagree on something. And most of the time it's, you know, it's on something that like nobody's even tried yet. And yeah. it's like, I mean, okay, yes, I understand you don't really want to do that, but like, how would you, why would you just not even try, you know, first? And so that's my argument. And it usually works out on my end. It's like, well, I guess, I mean, you know, I guess it's okay. You know, I mean, because once they figure out that this is a safe zone, this is a creative zone, they don't have to go out. Like, they're not performing for me like they're performing for an audience. We're, ca- um, we're collaborating, you know, you know, we're coming up with something. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to be great. You know, but once they kind of get past that idea, that kind of breaks down that wall a little bit, then they're able to kind of loosen up and mess around a little bit. So that's probably the big thing. And then secondly, probably vocal arrangements, harmony. You know, I came from the the pop punk school, so mm-hmm. you know, two part harmony is just you know, you know, there's pop punk is a clinic and two part harmony. There's yes. <laughs> you know, so much great stuff going on there that I'm able to pick up and use that are just universal. That you can always make some really really cool stuff with. So things like that, like adding layers and just extra dimensions that that people who are um, writing songs and doing demos and things like that don't necessarily see that far into the future with. But I hear it right away and I start making notes and we start adding a whole bunch of cool stuff in on the vocal end. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. Uh, uh, here's a sidebar that I've been talking to producers about. How do you take your notes? How do I take my notes? I, I'm a pen and paper guy. Uh-huh. I have, I, I have a notebook with some really nice pencils that I spent too much money on mm-hmm. and I keep it with me in my bag. And if I have an idea, I just kind of take it down, but I don't take a lot of notes. That kind of goes back to when I was in college. I used to be like the, the really diligent note taker guy, I sit down and, and try to write down everything the professor said. Then I ended up missing half of it because I'm sitting there worried about, you know, <laughs> what to put down in my notes. So, so I just started listening a lot more than kind of making notes of the important things, you know? And so kind of a translator that over. So, so I don't make a lot of notes of when I do, I like to, I like to get pen and paper and put it down. It just feels better to me that way. Uh, I, I'm right there with you as much as I'm a technology addict who tries to keep forcing the iPhone into the process. <laughs> it just oh, uh, the, 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 the pen and paper just works faster and is some cues me visually better. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There's something about having it right there with you. Plus, um, 
there's probably research to back this up somewhere, but I think writing something down, the mm-hmm. act of actually writing something down helps, helps the memory so much. It does. Too. Yeah. Make, that, that's a, that is a fact. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. Uh, science. Science uh, and everything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. I have it c- cited somewhere in my new book. And now I'm realizing like, Oh yeah, I really got to remember where that comes from. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Probably the most common thing. And, this may have to do with kind of like where I'm located at and, and um, kind of the young artists that I work with too. Also, they want to be so prepared and so kind of dialed in that they forget, you know, they forget that they're making music, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'll come in and they'll just, they'll just kind of regurgitate this piece. Then when something wants to change or we want to add a vibe into it, or we actually um, change a note or like, let's get a different feel on that part eyes get really big <laughs> and it's like and you know, start to sweat and it's like oh like what do you mean like i i kind of practice this part and and people sometimes fail to see that they really really are making music you know and uh, this kind of happened to me early on i um, had a professor who tried to ingrain this in everybody and he was he was saying that you could um you'd almost teach anybody to learn something just by muscle memory, by repetition. Mm -hmm. And like by you learning a piece of music and playing it, just regurgitating it without thinking about it, like that is not music. Mm -hmm. That's like PE. That's like physical education. You know what I mean? That's like, that's a test. Like Mm -hmm. that's not music. Improvisation and the ability to kind of move and vibe and change along with what's going on. Like that's what, that's what real music is. That's what real Mm -hmm. music is about. And so that kind of slapped me across the head. I was like, well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because it's so true. And so, I try to ingrain that in, in folks that come in to not be so, so rigid and so, so like locked into one thing that they can't think musically about it, you know, and, and to not, not commit so much. I, I, there's a certain level of preparedness that you want to have. You don't want to be unprepared, mm-hmm. but you also don't want to be unflexible. And yeah, so it, it's this balance between getting the demoitis that you're stuck in things, but then also not being proficient enough that you know any, you know your songs well enough totally. to have put thought totally. into them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you bring up, though, a great point that, like, there is this also other balance of, like, you know, yes, we like the idea that you're doing a recital in the studio, and some of it should be reciting, but there also needs to be creativity in the studio and changing with when we hear, you know, the picture is always getting clearer. We hear things, we have to react and change, or else it's just going to be malnourished because you're going to hear things and you're just like, oh, well, we're not fixing that because we're just reciting here. No. Doesn't oh, work. yeah. 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 It's, it comes off plastic, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You got to get rid of that stuff. You got to, you got to put some put some life into it. You know, super important. How about a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? And this is something that not necessarily every band does or needs to do, really. But honestly, and um, this applies more to bands and solo artists because um, the solo artists we got to come hire musicians, and there's never really an issue. Those guys are, you know, those guys do this for a living. They're locked in. If there's a band that that has a guy who's like the guy, right? Most guys have a band that's like the guy. That's like, he's the guitar player. He, he writes a lot of stuff. He just nails it. You know what I mean? He's got the discipline, right? He's got the experience. And this guy could come in and play every single part, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like super locked in. And, and he is just like, he is just tearing it up. And then, um, you know, kind of deferring sometimes to that guy or those group of people who could really, really get it done, as opposed to kind of saying, well, I really, really want to do this this time, you know, mm-hmm. or I, I really want to give this a try. And so sometimes that, if you don't feel good about doing it in the first place, like giving it a try, sometimes in a studio setting where you're paying real money, this is going to be something that you're trying to get, you know, I'm 
you'd be trying to get a record deal. This is like your future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something that you're trying to do that with. Like if, if that doesn't go really well, like it's super, super demoralizing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Agreed. And it also adds time. It adds stress to the project. And so, but there are a group of people, I mean, probably most bands are like this, but they, well, most bands I work with anyway, they are, they're also business minded to the point where, okay, this is not a game anymore. <laughs> like we're spending real money on this. We're coming to try to do this for real. And so they kind of work out almost ahead of time. Hey, I'm going to play these parts. And then that way everything is super smooth. They work it out. There's, there's no weird politics that go on. Everything is talked out and worked out. And they bring that to me and say, Hey, this is, this is who um, we want to record this and yada yada and all that stuff. And so that, that makes it all, that makes it a lot easier. I mean, than having to deal with the band politics of a guy who's not, who's not cutting it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because we really can't uh, at this level, what we're trying to do, nobody can afford to, to have something that's, that's not up to snuff, you know, that's yes. not quality. The last thing that matters is your ego. Like the mm-hmm. last thing, and so that's also the first thing to get cut. It's like, okay, we need to figure something else out. You, you, I mean, there have been countless times where it's, it's like somebody, you know, you know, could have been could have been saved a lot of trouble by just, you know, giving over the reins, you know. <laughs> and so that was a smart thing that, that that bands do a lot of times. They work at that ahead of time, so, so mm-hmm. there's no uh, there's no weirdness happening, you know. We like no weirdness. Yes, <laughs> that's we're trying to get weird. Yeah. There's plenty of weirdness already. Yes. We don't need to add. We don't need to add that. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? First, you know, the, the time-honored tradition of making their ideas sound really stupid and making fun of them, you know, usually. That's how we, that's how we usually go. <laughs> we usually make fun of each other, you know, try to make their ideas sound as stupid as possible. Like, that part's <laughs> not stupid. It's like... <laughs> You know, and <laughs> yeah, that's what we that's what we usually do at first, and then we kind of calm down, and then typically we really do try to f- get to the bottom of why why do we disagree about that part, and so why do you think this? Why do I think that? And then we really just you know, come to an agreement. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it will come down to okay, are we going to sell any more records because of this or not? Then I usually even the one to bring that up. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, how much is this going to matter? You know, or Sometimes if there's a really, really strong personality in a band, you kind of have to say, okay, you know, I'm going to pick my battles on this because mm-hmm. this is, you know, semi-important, but I can see a much bigger battle down the road where I'm going to need a lot more ammunition. And so you might just kind of be like, okay, let this one go, but make sure you fight for the thing that really, really, really matters. It's going to make the difference between, you know, selling records, getting a deal making an impact on people as opposed to something that would be cooler, but not necessarily going to matter big picture. You, you know, you pay attention to everything, but when it comes to disagreements and stuff, you really have to start saying, okay, what's going to matter on a broad scale, not just us sitting here in the room. So that's what we try to work out. I like that. So let's get your opinion about a couple of modern production tools. Do amp simulators dash reamping have a role in your production? Um, yes. And Reamping, uh, more so reamping. I really always have liked the sound of an actual amp. That's just kind of that's how I got my best sounds kind of coming up, and so I just kind of always end up going back to that for well, especially for a rock sound. Now on like clean guitars, I'll use a sim any day on a clean because they can they can get some amp sounds that I can't get with what I have. <laughs> Basically, that that are really just pretty and nice and clean and crystal clear, and so that. That sound to me is kind of the hardest sound to get on an amp. So I can fire up an orange rocker verb and get the best distortion you've ever heard, you mm-hmm. know. But but when it comes to getting a really really just amazing clean tone that blows your mind, like that's that takes a lot of time to dial in and it takes a lot of options. And so sometimes the amp sim is the best way to go. I my uh, 
my usual go-to is is a native instruments a guitar rig five that's mm. my that's my big go-to but i did just yesterday i i downloaded the new slate stuff yeah that stuff's great i'm not really is it yeah i mean i think for what amp sims are i think that's the best but i mean i don't i've never put an amp sim on a record i've done in my life so Really? I'm also saying nice. that stuff's great as a scratch and writing tool and making me less annoyed by the tone, but oh, yeah. I've never, I've never done a record where I haven't used all real amps. So that's interesting. That's cool. Well, that's a cool thing to be able to say, just like sticking to that. You know what I mean? That's a cool thing. <laughs> I, I mean, it's also just a matter of, I have always had enough amps that it's really not been a thing since before the time. I mean, I've been doing this so long that there wasn't amp sims when I started. So by the sure. time there was amp sims, I had enough amps that it didn't matter. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, well, I'm, if you say they're the best ones around, I'm interested to check them out then. But yeah, for any kind of rock sound, it's pre it's pretty rare mm -hmm. for me to go to an amp sim. For me, the best I have, just on, on on these last two projects I've been working on, actually, I've had a Kimber Profile or the Rack Mount one, which is actually really mm. really really neat piece of gear, and yeah. then and then the Axe Effects too, which is I kind of had them both back to back. They kind of do like two different things. They kind of have their thing, but but I was super impressed with mm. uh, what they both could do, and, and so that's obviously a lot more advanced than something like Guitar yes. Rig. That's just like a regular. That's just like a regular sim. These are like you know, yeah. you know these are totally these, these are models, impulses, everything. It's like wow, you know, that's that's serious serious stuff. So if I was ever going to go hardcore into the sim game, it would be something like that. So something like a Kemper. Agreed. <laughs> You know. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, I definitely uh, fantasize about the day of the that the the Kemper is the be all end all, and you don't have to deal with this stuff as much as I'm like, all right, well, I've never used that stuff really. <laughs> I'm like, man, I would love if I could just scroll through presets. Oh yeah, the fact that you can profile your own amps. Yeah, it's, you know that's incredible. I. I Sidebar story. This is this is probably this is probably ten years ago. This uh, big time producer guy who I know he he got the idea one day to just go to Guitar Center and drop like six Gs on on like keyboard stuff, mm -hmm. and then rent, um, went and rented out a studio in LA for like two days and just sampled everything, like mm -hmm. sampled all the different velocities, sampled the best sounds of everything, and then just like took it all back the next day to Guitar Center. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I was like, that is savage, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's unreal. But yeah, you know that's. That's kind of that's the world. How about uh, sampled and MIDI drums in your productions? Yeah, um, I like to, to use them to kind of boost more than I do out in the forefront. We really, really try to get good sounds going in. When you get good drum source first, uh, spend a lot of time finding the right the right snare, the right tuning, and to make sure we have good source material. And I typically use my own samples. We try to get samples from the kit that we're actually using because most of the time we're using different kits for every project. So. We try to bring bring a unique character to it if we're going to use it. So, so I'll sample the kit and I'll make my own trigger presets with it, like room and close mics, and I'll blend that in with what we have. But try to really, really get a good, real sound coming in. So, so our drum takes are nice and nice and tight. Keep things in the center of the center of the drum. No, no crazy overtones happening. So, it takes a little bit of time, but it's well worth doing. It makes all the difference in the world. But yeah, we definitely do that. Nice. We definitely use that stuff. Uh, how about does pitch correction have a role in your productions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, um, I can remember the last person I talked to who didn't use some kind of some kind of correction. Uh, I, I, so. I, I almost feel like I have to retire this one, this question, because the answer is pretty much always yes. So I'm starting to feel like it's a bit obvious. So <laughs> maybe it's like, what pitch correction do you yeah, use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to that. Yeah. Well, and, I, and even seemingly that seems to always be the answer of Melodyne for most people. Yeah, sure. so. Yep. I, well. 
this might be a little bit different for you because mm-hmm. I'm using Melodyne, but I'm I'm using the same version of Melodyne that I bought in 2007. Same, it's somehow, same it's, for me, too. It still works with my platform somehow, which is crazy because like 80% of everything I had in 2007 doesn't work anymore with anything that's software-related, yet Melodyne, you know, is still is still going like a champ. And so I never upgraded to the polyphonic one, never really messed around with that. It, it sounded cool, but I was just like, I don't think I could sleep at night if I knew that I was I was trying to tune a guitar on the polyphonic melodyne. I was like, dude, no, that's we would just re-record it. There's no yeah. way I'm getting into that. And so, so yeah, I just stuck with the regular melodyne plugin, and it's it's on the same version. It's been for you know eight years. Is it eight years? Yeah, now? eight or nine years. I'm th- I'm thinking about it now that you're saying it, and I'm like, well, I think that record was eight and a half or nine years ago that we were yeah. using it on. So I guess it's been that long. I, I can remember sitting on my laptop on the toilet doing auto tuning with it. So, mm, well. I'm- Learning it is really interesting because I actually I work with a, an act down here. Um, it's, it's kind of a pop R and B, real soulful, really really neat project. And um, there's no one size fits all solution for her on Melodyne at all. Mm-hmm. You you really do have to use it, but you have to you have to really you got to be like level ten Melodyne. You got to go in and no snap at all. You got to like mind her bends and things like mm-hmm. that, put them in the right place, make sure they start in the right place. You, you, you adjust formants, everything. And, and so, I, I mean, I've, I've gotten to the point on her where this one, uh, this last record we did on her, I don't think I used the correct pitch button once in Melodyne, but wow. everything went through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think <laughs> it's know? an interesting thing. I remember when um, Melodyne first came out, I remember I was the, like one of the first people I knew to get it, and a lot of my bigger producer friends were like, oh, I want to know. but And then like <laughs> they, they finally came out with like tutorials for it, and I was like, all right, I figure it out. And I remember reading this article um, about Jimmy World. Probably was like Futures or the record. I think it was Futures, actually. They were like, well, it just doesn't work on Jim Adkins' voice. But then what I kind of realized in time is I think that really what it is is that there is just some people that are great singers that you just never can use that snap to pitch on because it just doesn't sound right. Absolutely. And um, and even go farther with that, I've kind of realized as the years have gone on and my ear has developed that I find that I'm using that less and less just because I hear things more naturally, how they, um, how I could fix things more in a natural way rather than just saying, oh, yeah, snap to pitch because it'll be on pitch. But, but there is a way that you can go and finagle it to make it natural and on pitch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's actually a really, really powerful tool that takes a lot of time to really, really master right. But, but as you develop and as you kind of get a feel for it, you see that, I mean, there's almost nothing it can't do in terms of pitch correction, like yeah. almost nothing. You know, you know, So you really just have to be patient with it and you have to kind of you know, keep going. But yeah, it's, it's crucial to everything everything that I do. I haven't done, I haven't done a record since I bought it, you know, back in 2007, probably that I haven't used it on. <laughs> nice. So, How about yeah. some uh, favorite soft sense? I'm big into the Arturia stuff now. Mm-hmm. Nowadays. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, and because I kind of got on this analog kick where it was, where it was no preset mode, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just re- really building sounds on your own. And that is like super, that's a super daunting task, especially when you go to Arturia because they have it, they have those things built like the actual keyboards. And yeah, yeah. You have to control them. You have to know how those things work in order to get the sounds right. So you pull up that ARP 2500 set on Arturia and see, and see all the stuff that's going on and see all the modular stuff that's in there. And it's like, oh man, like I'm really, I'm way in over my head here, but you can get a lot of good stuff if, you just kind of spend time and get it right. So that's kind of what I'm on now. And um, before that was Native Instruments. Um, mm-hmm. I got Complete 10, and that's, you know, 
Yeah. That's a killer. That's a killer program. You can do a lot of you do a lot of stuff with it. And obviously, the sampler is a huge thing. It, um, you can make your own sample. You can make your own packs. You can do anything with that sampler. You yeah. Know? And so that's a that's an extremely powerful tool as well. And I'm also a big Trillion fan. Big mm. Trillion fan. Yeah, that's great synth stuff too. Those synth-based samples, um, that Novation Base Station sample in. Truly, and that PWM sample is like that's probably the best bass sample I think I've ever heard. It's it's just an incredibly rich, like really well done instrument, and that really goes for all of Spectrosonics. Honestly, yeah. like, Omnisphere is you know yeah the best. It's just as ridiculous. You that's know? definitely it's, the best sounding soft synth there is. You can get a good sound quick too with Omnisphere. That's what's cool about it too. It's like you don't have to be a synth genius to figure out how to use Omnisphere. You can mm-hmm. you can get a good sound quick. It's it's kind of the opposite theory from Arturia where it's like, okay, we give you all this room to hang yourself with. Now yes. go, <laughs> go good luck. You know, an atmosphere is like, Hey, come have fun with this neat synth. That sounds awesome. You know? Yeah. And I've done both of those, but yeah, they're both, they're both great at what they do, you know, for sure. I, I, you, you and I, you and I have the, the same. I think that's the thing is like Omnisphere to me is like, okay, here's the best sounding synth settings you can possibly get. Whereas Arturia is like, all right, you need to be creative. You need to come up with something fresh, something new. Here it is. But if you just want a classic sound, Omnisphere is your go-to place and it's going to sound killer in a mix. It is, yeah. It's nice and rich. It's just so well sampled. I wonder kind of like what they do sometimes, but then mm-hmm. I kind of get in my head. I'm like, okay, I don't, <laughs> that's going to take me too long to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> it, but I'm like, forget it. Let's just, let's just use it and be happy. Same. Um, <laughs> Do you master your own records? I do not. That is that's that's the first thing that I gave up when I when I started to do things that were like you know quote unquote next level type recordings. I that was the first thing that I gave up. I was doing my own mastering on my my Roland VS twenty four eighty. Even when I had Pro Tools, I would dump it back into my Roland because I had this killer mastering preset that I thought was just like the bomb, right? And I was just like married to that thing. And then I got some good advice from some people I really trust and was like, hey, you know, your stuff doesn't sound bad at all. But it was, you know, um, you really try to move up and try to do some different things. Like you should really learn to to figure out what you're good at and outsource what you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and so, that's you know, great why philosophy. Don't you, why, don't you try, why don't you try this mastering guy over here? So I was like, oh, okay, you know, so I gave it a shot. And then, yeah, of course, once you go to a mastering session for the first time when you've been making records in your bedroom, you know, for, for a long time. And you see the care, and you see you know you see a Neve masterpiece for the first time, and uh-huh. it's like, oh my gosh, like this is like this is serious stuff, and it's you know it's really adds a ton of value to your project for not for not too terribly much money, you know. I mean, unless you're going to Sterling or something and paying two hundred bucks an hour, yes. you know. I, I mean, actually, that might be under Sterling's price. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> well, that's their entry level guy. That's the yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, that's like the third guy in the chain at Sterling. But yeah. um, God, I got some funny stories about them. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, but yeah. So um, finding finding a good engineer who kind of gets what you do—that's you know super helpful. So so I actually have two different guys that I use for for a different style of project, more like organic stuff, more broken down, maybe even like slash acoustic type stuff. I have a guy, and then the stuff that's like rock band stuff that's real slick and real you know real up in your face. I have another guy who's just you know you know he really nails that sound. So those are kind of the that's kind of how I have it partitioned now. But no, I I'm I don't. Master, I don't master anything. I don't. I don't really. I don't really have the uh, the ear to do it objectively. I guess you know what I mean because I tried. You know, I've tried all the things that people do. I've you, 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 I've used everything from T racks to FG, you know, you know, FGX. <laughs> you know, I used T racks back in the day just to try it. Oh I mean, yeah, of course, the, it was, the of course, worst. it was terrible. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was terrible. It was god awful. And so, yeah, thankfully, I got some good advice from some people who who went out of their way to 
to kind of set me straight on some of that stuff. And, and so that set me on the right road. Yeah. No mastering here. <laughs> nice. Sure. Tell me how long it usually takes for you to record a song and how long it usually takes for you to mix a song. Depending on kind of kind of the schedule and what's kind of in the mix queue. Cause I like to kind of keep a, I like to kind of mix in the morning with fresh ears. So, so there's a lot of times I'll set us up my mornings to do mixes and things like that. Then I'll have the afternoon to, to do other things mm-hmm. rather than just kind of set them all aside. There's a lot of people who just, you know, I mean, we'll go from project to project. They won't do something else until it's finished. And that's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like sometimes, sometimes here in a non, in a, in a major market, when things are slow, you kind of have to pick things up, you know, sometimes. And mm-hmm. so, so it kind of depends, but um, if it's one song, we track we track everything in a day or two most. Usually, usually two. I kind of like to get all the music rocking, and then we kind of hit the vocals the next day, and then and then kind of put everything else on top of that. I kind of like to record the vocals honestly before before there's too much in the song. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a different process than than some people will. At least that's the feedback I've gotten. I. I I basically like to go right to the lead vocal after we get the general rhythm section down. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. So you're saying like accompaniment stuff, like the rhythm guitars or the rhythm keyboards, or you're saying like right after the bass and drums? Most most of the time it is drums and, and the rhythm guitar. I, mm. I kind of have like this, this triangle philosophy that I kind of like set up at the beginning where it's generally the, the vibe, the tone, the character of any record is going to rest. Well, and this is for a band, this is for like a rock band, for instance. Yes. The tone and, and the, the, the character for that record is, is going to rest in drums rhythm guitar and vocals everything else should just be kind of supporting those those tones you know and so that's that's just kind of my philosophy so if if we can get our record sounding really really good and feeling good with drums rhythm guitar and lead vocal Mm -hmm. then everything else we do is just going to help that out and so sometimes i'll even do the bass like sometimes the bass is the last thing that happens just so we can make sure that we're getting a good vibe because i mean Sometimes you throw a bass in there that can cover up all kinds of stuff. You know, just because it feels good, right? You just get this nice, thick, you know, just low end, just just blasting it. There's this great vibe and there's this great feel from it. But, but, but um, then you start to focus a little more on that than the details. And so, not putting the bass in right away kind of helps us really, really make sure that we're getting really, really good tones, good takes, mm-hmm. and good sounds from those super, super important elements. Because, I, I mean, bass is cool and all, but I mean, let's be real. Like, nobody ever talked about the bass sound on Metallica's yes. Black album, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great and point. So, <laughs> and so that's um, that's kind of what kind of got me to that point where we started doing those kind of core elements first and, and using everything else as kind of a support role. <laughs> and convincing the bass player that he's going to go last. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's so funny because, you know, so many bands are shocked by the bass going last thing. And it's like, you know, then you say like, you know, that bass going first was an R and B thing. And we haven't been doing bass based music where bass is the main composition for most people, in, you know, in rock, we're not, we're not, I mean, we're not talking punk is over 40 years old and people are still shocked by this concept. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and around here, a lot of times, um, there's a lot of country and I mean, we have our own genre of music, Texas country down here, Texas mm-hmm. red dirt country. And a lot of that stuff is cut live. So mm. like the idea of like a bass player going last is like foreign to these guys. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? We're not going to play it all at once. And I'm like, no, no, we're not going to play it at once. I hate tracking live. That's like my least favorite thing in the world to do. 
it, well, it's, it's yeah, it's it, it, it's one of the least interesting things as a producer. It's definitely always something I, I when I was younger, I was like, yeah, if I have to do this the whole, my whole life, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, sure. And also, uh, early on when I started like the first studio in college, mm. we were trying to figure out, okay, you know, you know, what do young bands need? Because I mean, I mean, these guys aren't going to come to us to record mm. radio songs. We're trying to get young people to kind of come in, and so. so what are the problems that these guys are facing? And the the idea that you would you would take a you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old kid who's been playing music kind of in their jam space or their garage with their friends, and then throw them into a professional studio environment, and then expect them to perform in the mm-hmm. same way that these professionals do is just like that is at best completely unrealistic. Yes. You know what I mean, and at worst, it's like demoralizing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, you go in, pay thirty dollars an hour to this to the studio. You go and track live, and it sounds like garbage because <laughs> you're just trying to do something that you're not capable of doing. And so, um, right away, we're like, okay, forget that. Like, why would we even try to do that with these yep. people? Let's so so let's figure out how we can best make this work. So we were the first studio here in this area to do flat rate recording to do all in. Interesting. Everybody was doing. Er, er, Yes, so so we started doing you know stuff. I mean, it was stupid. It was like 150 bucks a song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's come in and do all the time you need, <laughs> all the time you need, because we just wanted to get it done. Yeah, right? but yeah. I, I tell tell people you you know a lot of people don't like to hear it, but you know it is that thing of like when you're first starting out, even 150 dollars a song is sometimes too much for a band to get your to get some stuff on your reel so you can get better projects. And like I literally. I started with just a bag of Doritos and a beer. Sure, absolutely. No, and um, and what's funny is now. Okay, so when did you start recording? Like, oh, I mean, you know, this is nineteen ninety four. Yeah. Okay. So. so okay. So that environment back then was a certain way, but I mean, with, with the advent of recording schools and music programs and things mm-hmm. like that, people wanting to actually do this stuff on their own. Like, how much more now is is the market flooded with new people who want oh, to come yeah. in and try to make a name? So it's like, man, we were doing stuff for free back when there weren't a lot of people doing it, and so it's like yeah. now now it's flooded. So you know, you know, if you're not willing to really, really go and you know go and grind it out, then you know somebody is. Mm-hmm. There's somebody willing to do what you're not going to do, and just hope that they're not hope that they're not as gifted as you, you know, <laughs> so you can make a living. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it really is that thing of like that that is that is the breaks and it's like that's sometimes the only way you're getting your foot in the door well, sure yeah and we did that mm-hmm. it was really funny because um our parents and other folks told us it was like you're not going to limit their time so they can just come in and take forever and i was just like well i mean i guess technically they could take forever if they wanted to but we just had this feeling that they just wanted to get it done as bad as we did mm-hmm. they just didn't want to have somebody breathing it breathing down their neck pulling money out of their pocket mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, that's a great way of putting it yeah yeah and, and so we just you know said okay let's just try this and see how it goes and, and it's exactly what happened they didn't want to be there any longer than than we did Mm-hmm. We just wanted to make good music and not have to kill ourselves to do it. And and so we, I mean, that's what helped launch the entire thing because um, all the bands that broke for me early on, all the seeds that I planted mm-hmm. to kind of get the reputation for doing those kind of records started right back then when, when we were extremely like band friendly and you come and you can make a good recording and not, and not kill yourself money wise and you can have a good time doing it. You didn't have to worry about all the stress. You didn't have to perform like a professional. You could come in and 
take time to do it. And so that was that was huge for us back then. That was huge for me. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it turns out so. Yeah, and yeah. plus learning how to make records right instead of rushing through. You don't learn anything if you're just like, well, I got to get this done as fast as possible because the band booked 14 songs in uh, one day. You don't learn anything that way. You learn oh. it by taking all the time in the world you need to get a good tone and how that good tone sounds. And then when you mess it up, <laughs> you're like, well, I thought that was the best guitar tone of all time. And now it sounds like trash. That's yeah. how you learn. Absolutely. And they were learning right along with us. Those mm -hmm. bands were, you know, and, and becoming more, becoming more professional. And they felt, they felt better at their product and, and fans responded. And, you know, I, back in the heyday, the MySpace days around here, you know, in 2000, you know, six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. like we had a local music scene down here that would sell out, that would sell out thousand cap rooms, local wow. bands only. You know, and it was just this this massive you know thing where people would come together. They would make they would make really really cool music, and nobody was paying. Nobody was paying by the hour to go do it. They were all doing they were all doing flat rate stuff, and they were all just kids who are non professionals making these records that were that were so much better because they could just take they could take the right time, and we're trying to fit them into a mold that 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 is set up for people who are really really disciplined pro musicians because they're not. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like they're more entertainers than musicians, you know, and that's a great point. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to tailor the experience that you have to know that going in, you can't try to, to take an entertainer and, and act like he's Beethoven. You know what I mean? You have to cater the experience. You have to get that right in order to make a good product. You're just going to be swimming upstream otherwise tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio well this is uh, this is this is bittersweet a little bit because it has has to do with something bad happening to a to a really really just dear friend of mine who i'm still friends with but um so, so i'm in the in the studio just minding my own business you, you know just working and the, this is 2010 and so i get a call from uh mark stewart who's the curly head guitar player for for the sickest kids uh-huh the lead guitar player. And um, he's like, all right, man, I'm just going to come out and say this. I'm calling you from Kyle's hospital room. Kyle's the drummer, his stepbrother. <laughs> I'm calling you from Kyle's hospital room. He's got a ruptured appendix. And yeah, it had been ruptured for three days uh, <laughs> or something crazy like that. And he decided he was just going to live with the pain for a couple of days and then he couldn't take it anymore. And then finally went to the hospital and, and they were just blown away. He could have, you know, you know, he could have, he could have possibly died if he had mm -hmm. done you know, you know, days longer, he, he actually would have. And so because he waited so long, they had to go in there and, and they have, they obviously had to take it out, but yeah, it was all abscessed and everything. So they had oh. to, they, they had to cut around and mess around. And so, I mean, it was major surgery, uh, major, major. And so major surgery on your abdomen yeah, and then playing, not fun. playing drums is not something that's even really possible. The doctors were like, okay, well, first of all, you're going to be in bed for two weeks like not moving and then six weeks with no drums. <laughs> and so that's bad when you're at band at, at almost the height of your popularity. This is 2010. Uh -huh. This is, you, you know, this is a serious time for them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, so I say all that to say that Mark calls me and says, we're doing a month of fly out dates, <laughs> um, with FDSK and Kyle's not going to be able to make any of them. He's going to be on bed rest for six weeks. We need you to play drums. And it was <laughs> like, I felt like I was in like a Disney movie, right? Mm. Or like the, 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 the kid on the bench, the producer guy who know, who knows all the songs and knows everything about any of this, like finally gets a chance to do something. Cause I had always wanted to tour and play, but I, I mean, my band never really got past the local level. And so I, I was, 
So I was like, what do you mean flyout dates? And so <laughs> this, he was like, oh yeah, well, just some stuff just kind of all over. Uh, we're going to Indonesia. We're going to Honolulu. We're going to, we're going to Paris. We're going to Lyon. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> I just completely, <laughs> I completely lost my mind. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But I was, I was feeling bad for Kyle at the same time. Obviously, it's a huge deal to, to be in a hospital bed laid up for six weeks. But oh, I mean, yeah. that, that experience um, of playing, playing those shows and filling in for him was absolutely like you know one of the, one of the best times of my whole life absolutely it was it was so fulfilling and it was so great to do um um especially with songs that you kind of help you know, you help co-write and produce and to kind of like see that come to fruition and, and play all these shows that were awesome we played we played the seattle not seattle um washington state fair mm-hmm. and it was like it was like we the kings rock to the moon ftsk and it was like we played this this like state fair stage for like 7,000 people and it was pouring rain. And it was like, that was, that was one of the best nights of my life. I, wow. I, I just don't think I slept after that. Cause I really felt like I was in a movie because <laughs> I had just been kind of called off the bench to do this. And yeah, it was, that was probably, that was probably my favorite day. Totally bittersweet because Kyle's in a hospital room. Sorry, Kyle, if you're listening, he already knows this. I've told him before. But yeah. <laughs> so, so, so with that, so, so I, I will say that the you know the first Forever uh, Six Kids LP to, to people who know me, they would never guess that that is one of my uh, favorite pop punk records of all time. You're kidding me! Oh, I, I, I love that record. And, Outstanding. Um, so, but I think that that record creatively and compositionally is one of the most creative pop punk records. Could you give any insight on what may have made that take place for them? Sure. Well, um, absolutely. And um, this goes to something that I was wrong about, actually. This, <laughs> this goes to me being wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so their first band, their first band before FTSK, half of the guys were, were more than half the guys were, were in a dance band called The Flip Side. Mm-hmm. Talking two thousand four, two thousand five, in that area, and they were the biggest band in Dallas. They were selling out. They were selling out Dallas shows. They had done two weeks on Warp Tour. They were the biggest band in Dallas, and I I had just done their second um, second EP that was really really cool. They were really starting to kind of build more mm-hmm. up, and and then they released it, and probably a month later, they were just like, "This isn't it." Mm. This isn't the future. And I was like, you're the biggest band in Dallas. Like, what do you mean this isn't it? Like, you guys are nailing it. You know what I mean? And they were just like, no, there's something else out there. There's just something completely different. So they they seriously, I, they pulled a police. They just shut down. They were the biggest band in Dallas. They did a last show and they shut down. They didn't even mm. bother, like, continuing. And I was like, you, you guys are crazy. Absolutely, like, nuts. You know what I mean? But that that kind of creative kind of fearlessness <laughs> to shut down something like that, to start something completely new was definitely behind the idea of how creative that album came off they were just fearless you know what i mean they, they, they didn't care can you imagine being the biggest band in your market and just sh- stop playing because no. you don't think it could go farther it t- <laughs> t- 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 takes a lot of bravery oh yeah it, it's ridiculous you have to be fearless and, and so that attitude of trying things and you know let's throw let's throw a piano into the song hey let's put Let's do this little keyboard line. Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. We can make a song off of that. You know what I mean? And it was just, it was things like that that they just weren't they weren't scared to try stuff. They were fearless creatives, you know. And and all of them vibed off of each other, and it was it was just a perfect perfect match. You know what I mean? They were really they're really really great together. They created well together. Let's get into your uh, taste in music. What's a perfect record that someone else has made, and what about it makes it perfect? 
perfect record. Well, this is kind of, I mean, it's hard to say what's perfect, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what really is perfect? Perfect yeah, to me. I, I, is, there's, a, there's a couple of records that I'm like, man, you know, I've been listening to this forever and I can't really find a flaw. That's funny. Well, okay, so then if we're going that route, mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, okay so, so we're talking sonically. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Performance-wise, um, mix, production. There's my train. You yeah, train. I was about to say, I, I know that sound, yeah. That's my train. It comes, it comes by three times a day. We have to stop doing the vocal. And the train, the train tracks are like 300 yards away. It's the loudest yeah. horn you'd ever hear in your life. There's no way it needs to be that loud. But yeah, anyway. Oh, yeah. So, so if, if we're talking about a record that's, you know, we're talking about sonically, we're talking about production, performance, mix, and everything. I think probably the perfect, probably the most perfect example I've heard of something like that where everything is dialed in and it is perfect is Blindside Silence. You mm, Blind that Side? is a great record. No, I know that record really well. I used to, use, Benson. I used to use that as a mix comparison all the of time course, like right? 10 years I mean, ago. Who didn't, right? Like mm-hmm. sonically, that thing is perfect. Like there, there, there are no holes in that record. Mm-hmm. The mix is perfect. The performances are awesome. You, you know, Christian, the singer, is just absolutely murdering all this, you know, high singing, screaming, just switching flawlessly between the two things, right? It's something that you, you, you can never teach that to anybody. I tried like three times. I was like, <laughs> that. You know what I mean? I probably played that record 10 times for people who I wanted to do the singing, scream thing. You, you just can't teach it. And, and those kind of intangible things to where everybody has their best day right the mixer mm-hmm. who mixed that record had his best day mixing that record howard benson was on his game the arrangements are perfect the, the sounds are perfect yeah that's uh, that's uh, howard benson yeah. and mike Polotnikov. is that, yeah. that right yeah yeah, that was great. I don't know if Mike was in on the the mix at that point. Mm. Yeah, I, I I think he was probably his engineer mm-hmm. still. Then this is what this is two thousand. Gosh, two thousand one, two thousand. It is two thousand two actually because I'm on a Spotify page putting it on my thing to listen to later. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, um, and they did um. Actually, did a reunion show. I remember this. Yeah, they did two in the states. They did they did one in New York and they did one here in Dallas, and I mm. went. And nice. I was I was just sitting there, just my my thirty three year old self, just sitting in the blind side, just 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 singing every word. They played Silence from the top all oh, the way down. That's awesome. Yeah, I top. remember my roommate when it was good to go to it. I, I did, knew. I think I had to work or something. It was cool, man. It, it was cool to see, and and of course you see a lot of old friends from the scene who used to come out mm-hmm. too. I mean, it was just like cool to just get some hugs and see those people again for the first time. I mean, people I haven't seen in ten years, you know. But yeah, so, so the perfect record probably is when everybody just has their best day mm-hmm. and stuff just works, you know what I mean? And yeah. so that's that's probably what goes into something like that. There's probably a handful of records that are like that, but I mean, not many to where you can really point to something that is sonically and just really, really just dialed in as that blindside record to me, you know? How about five of your favorite records in your and how they shaped your musical growth through the years? Oh man, this is where it's going to get weird. <laughs> this is where it's going to get weird. This is where I take a lot. I take a lot of flag for this. We'll start from back to front. We we'll go five. We we'll go five to one, just to make the uh, suspense, you know, okay, palatable. Probably number five, I'd say, is uh, Lincoln Park with Thousand Suns. Have you ever heard that record? I have. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool record. I'll just go and say full disclosure. Lincoln Park is my favorite band of all time. Wow. I, th- I, th- I think they're probably the best band. I think they're probably the best band in the world. And that is, I get made fun of. You have no idea how much I get made fun of. I, 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 I kind of do because I think about how much I'd make fun of you if you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. I There's just something about them that just, that I get. 
they were like swallowed up in that new metal scene with all the all you know Limp Biscuit and all the people who were just out there just doing you know you know doing it all for the nookie. Yeah, right. And, and so you hear Abe Lincoln Park writing about you know child abuse and serious things and just like having the, these really deep things going on. They get thrown in with you know new metal and they get thrown in with that stuff. But but they pivot right. They pivot and they survive to this this whole new thing that they've been doing you know you know since you know minutes to midnight and it's just like this they're brilliant creatives to me that they've been able to do that stuff and i think thousand suns that's like that's probably like their best record to me that mm. really really comes in and just it is it's like the peak of their creativity to me you know and mm. so that's on my list can't put it at number one because well we'll get there in a sec you won't believe number one if you think that's number five great let's, really keep, let's keep going you really hate number one I, uh, four, I, I, this one everybody usually is pretty cool with, uh, Killer's Hot Fuss. Yeah, that's, that's in there for me, too. Mixed by the great Mark Needham, who actually, who I'm lucky enough to be, you know, you know friends with. He's a great guy. We, um, we um, had a joint venture, a publishing venture. Oh, nice. Point, and he's just, you know, he's, he's been a great He's been a great guy to bounce stuff off, and just like one of like the really, really like nice guys in the business. And he mixed that album. On, um, he mixed it on spec for points, you know. <laughs> and it's like you know, just imagine how that, um, how well that's turned out for him. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's great. So yeah, and then kind of a random one, little outlier number three, um, MXPX Live in general. Nice, a nice. That was kind of their. That was their first like record to me that that wasn't you know. Well, their first album was was a little too skate punk, a little too unpolished for me. Mm-hmm. Like um, life in general, really just kind of set the tone for I think I think what what was the rest of their career. And, and like the next record, slowly going the way of the Buffalo is probably just as good, you know. And it's just they're such a good band. They influenced me like huge, huge. And I didn't even like it at first. My younger brother was so into it, and he always just annoyed me to get to listen to it, and I, I hated it. He just kept he just kept playing it and kept playing it. I kept learning the songs. And I kept knowing the lyrics as he would play in the car and it would just it relentlessly just kind of pushed at me and so i was i was into it you know yeah we, ju- we just had uh steve kravick who uh did that record uh, on the podcast like three episodes ago you're kidding me yeah it's a great episode you should check it out oh dude he did slick shoes too which he did is also one of all time dude you want to talk about a great sounding pop punk record that first slick shoes album the drums on that record are so cool and it's just man no drums have sounded like that like since. Man, that guy, dude. I I would love to meet that guy. I would I would nerd he, out over he, that guy. He is a great talker, so you should uh, totally check out that episode. He, he's like, you know, there's some people who do this who are very good at their job that that can't speak well. You seem like you could speak well. He speaks very well. You, you should you should do it up. All right, give me another give me, give me another two. Sorry, okay. I'm marvelous three. Ready, sex, go. Mm-hmm. That's the album that, that I saw them play down from the top of Granada. Absolutely changed my life. It's one of the it's 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 absolutely one of the best records I've ever made. It bomb. Mm-hmm. I mean, like seriously, like it sold fewer records than like your average MySpace band did in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Like it bombed completely. But there's so much great stuff on there. You can't even find it on iTunes. I I don't think. Wow. You have to go find a physical copy of it somewhere. Like all of Marvelous Three stuff is somewhere except for that record. <laughs> and it's just this. Um, you can't find it on YouTube though, because I actually went and looked up the other day. You can find the songs just like streaming on YouTube. But yeah, great record. It's just it's this rap. It's this this Queen you know ish type project that's just really in your face great arrangements great everything butch walker is a genius you know what i mean he's the best of us <laughs> he really is uh and then the last one absolutely my favorite record of all time it's I, I didn't have to think about it i sing every song every every note i know every part of it simple plan no helmets no pads just walls. 
It absolutely is. I know. See, you can't even you can't contain your app. I, I know. You. I, I, you know. I, was, I'm I, I thought. I thought I was, it was going to be more like uh, you were going to say Nickelback, and I was like, you know, you're not even the third person on this podcast to say that. And then, oh the, my god! But then you hit me with the simple plan, and I'm like, yeah. man, that, that's, that's a yeah. rough one. Having your top three favorite bands be Linkin Park, The Killers, and Simple Plan, like that really throws people off. Like they start to wonder about you. You know what I mean? But hey, yeah, listen, that, but, but you know what? Producers need to have really high standards, and you're listening to really well-crafted music, and that's what helps. So true. I mean, man, that stuff, like you cannot find, you cannot find a bad harmony on that record. Mm. They blend perfectly together. I, I, I'm going to agree, I'm agree with you on that. I've had to listen to that record a few times. I, the keyword being have to have. Okay. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and that's one of the records that I was able to actually analyze, but then it actually transcended back to where I can enjoy it because mm-hmm. there's a lot of records. I, I, I'm sure you might be cursed with this too, but I analyze almost everything you hear almost oh, yeah. instantly. Right, you know what I mean? And so, there's just a handful of records that I can listen to and, and sit there and sing every word and just forget you know, that the kick drum doesn't have enough, you know, 200, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 I like to say there's some, there's some records I only listen to on the laptop speakers cause it gets me out of that head. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's a good look. But yeah, that's, that's my number one. I didn't even have to think about it. Like that was, yeah, that was the first one down. It's just, that's just how it is. It just hits me, man. How about, um, uh, a, your three favorite producers? Oh, right along with that, you know, um, Butch Walker, right at the top, you know, SR-71, Bowling for Soup, Family Force 5, who's a dope band, who doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> no, the production yeah. on that, the, one of those records is insane. Yeah, I always oh. remember that, yeah. The Maverick one, right? The one that came out on Maverick? Hey, yeah. I, I, you know, I, 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 I'd probably be bad to know which label, but I, I remember always being like, man, this record, Jesus Christ. Dude, the, the yeah, sonically, that record is in ridiculous shape. It's, it's another one of those, it's like, like... Everybody had a really good day putting that together, but yeah, that was a that was a good record. Um, I looked for that on Spotify the other day. Not there, hmm. it's gone. All their stuff post that because that was their first record. Mm-hmm. I think it has something to do with it being on Maverick and then that not being around much anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that that, that you might be onto something there. Yeah, and um, second is going to be Howard Benson, just as referenced before. Blindside, Pod, Lesson Jake. You know the guys. The guys brilliant. He was like an electrical engineer or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, re- before, I remember hearing that. Yeah, <laughs> before we started to make records, it's, uh, I kind of relate that a little bit. But I got that point early in life when, um, when I was nineteen. I figured out, okay, I would rather make music than do anything. And so, I mean, I can relate to having that moment. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, the light bulb just kind of turns on. So yeah, that's good. And then um, three is a little bit. Three is a little bit of a wild card, but. Um, because he's been more um, more active recently, but I got to know him personally, so it's, it's super hard not to like him. But 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 uh, Tim Pagnotta from Sugar Cult, the lead singer. Oh, nice, yeah. Was, you know, I mean, Neon Trees, mm-hmm. um, uh, Walk the Moon. The guy's just you know does a lot of great stuff. I didn't and, know he did that Walk the Moon stuff. Huh? that yeah, makes that yeah. totally makes sense. That's totally his it's like, like right? yeah, that's like his melodic stru- structure totally. Yeah, and, and so. Um, I had the chance to work with him for a day once and it basically turned into us just sitting there just chopping it up, just talking like until like four in the morning. And it was just the coolest. Like he's another one of those guys who's just a genuinely like really, really, really good dude. There's nothing like that. There's nothing fake about him. And he just really, really likes, you know, making records. He appreciates the craft of it. He's just, he's a good dude. And, um, he just done some really, really cool work. And, uh, <laughs> he gave me some cool advice and I learned a lot of, 
I learned a lot of things from him, um, you know, just in the one day that I still use, you know, now. <laughs> nice. So, he's a good dude. So uh, Tim, Tim comes in at number three. What's your favorite record that's come out in recent times and what inspires you about it? I'm I'm really I'm really was digging that first 1975 album. Uh, you, 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 uh, same answer as me. Yeah, man. It's just like that's another ex- example of like people who are like fearless creatives, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these people go in and like they 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 just go in and try all kinds of cool stuff. You, you know, they have that a song "Settle Down." You know what I mean? Yeah. They have the, it's unbelievable. Listen to that song. Like that's unreal. But I, I mean, there's a guy in the verse who's just like. Nah. You know, just making mm-hmm. making a crazy sound in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you arrive at that? You know, <laughs> I, I, I think the way they arrived on that is listening to a lot of it excess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was like, okay, I'm gonna go in there. I'm gonna make a sound like a, <laughs> like a bow horn, yeah. right? That's, yeah, and we're gonna use it. And it's just like I would have to kill somebody to try to do that here, but I do sometimes. Mm. You know, but like that's the Lord knows what they tried. You know, you know, Lord knows the bad stuff that they tried. <laughs> We only hear the good side of that stuff. Yeah, that's the idea, you know what I mean? But yeah, that um, that stuff is put together so well and it's so creative. And I don't even care that I can't understand a word he's saying. You know what <laughs> I mean? I don't even care. I can understand most of what he said, but you, you know, I, there's also a lot of English people here in Brooklyn, so I think I'm used to oh, it. <laughs> yeah, it has to be something to do with it. Yeah, because here, I mean, it's like, dude, here in the South, I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, you know. I almost um, – well, um, I used to that a lot growing up as a kid because I couldn't understand stuff. So I would just kind of make it in my head just like the syllables. Uh-huh. Not not real words. Just make a make a gibberish like the Reliant K song. You know, the gibberish. So I, I probably would actually be pretty disappointed if I actually did know what he was saying. I actually don't really want to know. I'd rather just have the syllables in my head, you know. So – <laughs> so before we finish up, um, you've launched a video series that you sent me that was really funny. Can you tell me a bit about that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, this this is basically something that that I decided to do because um, there's a lot of my peers um, and people I look up to who are not necessarily my peers, but just people just kind of in the business who um, – who are doing a lot of these self-help things, you know, or not necessarily like self-help, but just like audio help, just like tutorials and um, and giving tips out and and things like that. And so I was, I mean, I see all this stuff. I'm a big follower of all that. So, so I look at it and I'm like, man, I could do something like that. Right. You know? And and so I was like, Oh, well, what could I do? Then I just start trying something like that. I'm like, this is terrible. Mm. (laughs) This is terrible because I'm trying to do something that, that I don't really do, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not going to be as good as what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so like, why, why should I do it? Just because, just because they're doing it, just because I think it could be cool. But so, so I would try to kind of make it my own by just kind of poking fun at it a little bit because mm-hmm. that's, that's way more my personality, like to poke fun at stuff. And that's it's a big thing we do here. We just kind of, you know, yeah. We take things pretty light here. You know, in every study I read on creativity, as I do research for the book I'm doing right now, it's like they really do show that the most effective creative environments are ones with lots of humor. <laughs> well, good. We're going to be swimming in it then. <laughs> we'll sit here and, you know, in, in a pull, up, pull up YouTube videos and, and crack ourselves up. Have you ever seen the mastering parody videos that are on YouTube? I don't think or, I have. They're like the, they're the they're the videos where the the guys go into the mastering lab and they're like based on real conversations that these mastering guys have had with clients who are just oh, don't know. Oh, these these are the Spectre Studio ones, or yes, yeah, 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 oh, yes, 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 yes. Gosh, dude, yeah. I mean, I am 
I'm in tears over that stuff. I don't know why I think that stuff is so funny, but I mean, I, I can't show that to anybody mm-hmm. in, in, um, who's not in a band or um, who's not a producer. I, my wife will not get any of that stuff. Totally. Like, so, you know, so yeah, we, we, we like to keep it light. So yeah, it's just a video that just kind of my take on it. So it's like, yeah, you want a fat snare drum sound, you mm-hmm. know? I just kind of trolling it a little bit and you know, you know, basically don't hit it like a girl. That's the first. <laughs> yes. And That's kind told- of the first thing that you got to get, right? You, know, uh, uh, you can do all this crazy stuff and and process process, you, you know, process it to hell and back, but if you don't, you know, get a good sound at the beginning, then all the stuff's not going to matter. So so um, like any good parody, there's some truth in it, you know, to where yes. it's like yeah, you can sit around and you know, you know do all this extra stuff, but I, I mean, you really should focus on the source a lot more because people don't focus on the source enough. Still, you, you know what I mean? I try to make it with technology, so that was just kind of my my little stab at that. And I've got more coming too, but yeah, just kind of taking shots at different areas of of studio and recording, and then yeah, my next one is taking shots at bass players because they're fun to mess with, and so nice. That'll be a fun one. <laughs> I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I'm, bass players are the butt of most of my jokes uh, <laughs> in, in my book. So tell me about what you've been working on lately. Uh, Strapped up a couple songs with uh, this band, Mount Tyrant. Great Dallas band. They they won the uh, they won the Ernie Ball National uh, Battle of the Bands. Nice. And, and played at South by Southwest. Got a bunch of uh, cool gear and everything. Yeah, they, they kind of have... I, I, you, I, which year did they win? I was the judge on it, I guess, two years ago. This year. This oh, nice. Year. So, yeah, that yeah. was the year after. Fresh off of it. Yeah. I, I, I will say this, that we really did go through... Uh, that was the most rigorous judging I've ever had to do, so they, they uh-huh. must be good because it really was that thing of, like, I can't yeah. believe how rigorous we were with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I despise judging anything that has any kind of high-level stuff going on because mm-hmm. you start to, like... Okay, how do we really distinguish these things? You know, you know what I mean. How do you really distinguish? Yeah, you, you, you know what was funny yeah. though is like I, uh, I agree with you. Like it's like it, judging is like a really weird thing, but I wanted to experience and see if I really had a disdain for it. And then what I, you know, what I I started just do is I just realized like the only way you judge is your own emotional reaction. Sure. And I think that's what you have to do is like you have to just go. Yes. Does this yes, move me? And it, whether that means that the guitarist is the best guitarist or not, that's not what it's about. Music's about an emotional reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's a really good philosophy. I probably should have done that. The last thing that I judged because I got <laughs> into like I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to tell these apart? I I judged about all the bands. Mm-hmm. The winner was going to play a festival with like thrice or something crazy like that, wow. and it was like a whole bunch on the line. And like I was the only judge who showed up, and like half the bands knew me, and I'm like, oh my god, like oh, what am fuck. I going to do? Here? <laughs> That's I not good. Like, oh, it was a nightmare. I turned in my decision and like ran out the door. Like I absolutely just like sprinted. I was like, I cannot be here for this. And yeah, I was the last time to do anything like that. <laughs> so I interrupted what you've been working on. Tell me some more. Yeah. So, um, Mount Tyrant, great stuff. It's kind of like you imagine, imagine dragons, the 1975 and like one direction had a baby kind of together. It's kind of, it's kind of that it has some poppy. It has some eighties. It has some weird stuff going on, but yeah, super creative. They obviously won the battle of the band. So, I mean, they, they got a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, just wrapped up two songs with a band called uh, Drudge. They're Dallas guys. It, it's um, Andrew Whiting from Attack Attack. It's his new band. Okay. It's not Attack Attack. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, it, it's it's heavy, but it's more of a leans more towards like modern rock than um, than what you would you would consider like modern hardcore, rysecore, core. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <Nice>. know. <laughs> but that's uh, yeah. 
and nothing against Rise, you know, at all. Yes. I mean, yeah, it's just the genre name. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I actually call it THX Core. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and so um, that's really, really, really good. And uh, he's one of those guys in the studio that's just, I mean, you can tell he's been playing for <laughs> for his entire, like, you know, his entire life. He's about the most nailed, like, rhythm guitarist I think I've ever run into. You know what I mean? And he's just, you know, that guy's dialed in. So this project's super heavy, and it's really, really solid. It's probably the first, like, really, really heavy thing that I've done. Hmm. done in a while so it, it was it, it was kind of nice to kind of get back into that mode because i used to do a lot of heavy stuff around here you, you know uh, to crown the empire around here and that was you know oh, gotcha. that was a huge thing and you know yeah. that was you know that was a lot of fun that was probably the last heavy thing that i did that that, that really went you know you know kind of far so that was fun to kind of get back into that mode because i enjoy you know um i enjoy the energy of the heavy stuff a lot but yeah it was cool it turned out great so If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 